Hello everyone. While I light a fire in my study, please find a comfortable position so I can tell you about tonight's story. Tonight we're going to travel across steppes, deserts and mountains following the trails of ancient caravans and also across time. You certainly heard of the Silk Road, a trade route that linked China in the east to the Mediterranean in the west and lasted for centuries. But how did it work? Why did it appear? Was it a single route or several? Who transported precious goods over thousands of miles? What happened during more than 1500 years of activity? And how did it change the world to have this early form of trade globalization? This is what we're going to explore. So relax. You can close your eyes at any time if you wish, and if you fall asleep, you can always come back later. And now, off we go. The Silk Road is an invitation to ask ourselves when and how trade on long distances appeared in the history of humanity. Actually, long before the Silk Road was established, Historians consider the creation of this particular route, or more precisely this network, we will see why, can be dated to the 2nd century BC, 2100 years ago, when the imperial Han dynasty in China expanded into Central Asia and pacified regions that were previously too dangerous to cross. This put the empire of the Han close to another large empire of the time, the Parthian Empire, with its heart in Persia, but that stretched from Turkey to Afghanistan. These two large entities formed a bridge between East Asia and the Mediterranean Sea. They were both interested in selling and buying goods that they needed, and this is what allowed the appearance of such a long trade route. But exchanges between Asia and the Middle East, Europe and Africa existed long before that. We know it, for example, because remnants of what was probably Chinese silk were found in ancient Egypt and dated to the 11th century BC, a millennium before the opening of the Silk Road. Another example is the discovery of silk and belt ornaments made in China in a tomb in Germany near Stuttgart dated from the 8th century BC. So, goods travelled before the Silk Road existed. 
an ancient trade network across Eurasia, was the steppe route at least 2,000 years before the Silk Road. On this steppe route, different goods were exchanged. Silk was one of them. There were also furs, precious stones and jewels, musical instruments, and very importantly, horses from Central Asia that were sought after by the Chinese. This informal steppe route was kept functioning for many generations by nomadic peoples living from Ukraine to Mongolia. And we know it existed thanks to archaeological finds. Artifacts were found in tombs or ruins thousands of miles away from where they had been made. Like these silk pieces in Egypt or Germany that I mentioned before. So were precious stones coming from afar, including jade or lapis lazuli. It is believed that these long-distance exchanges appeared because of the lifestyle of the peoples who occupied the steppes of Eastern Europe and Asia. Even though they were in contact with fixed settlements and they had developed their own crafts and a certain level of technical advancement, they had maintained their nomadic lifestyle. So they were often on the move over a large territory without fixed borders. They had large areas they considered theirs so they also had neighbors and were well-placed to connect peoples living far apart by transporting goods. This step route was certainly not as intentional as the Silk Road would be. It seems that it appeared spontaneously as a, a vast network of peoples who knew their immediate neighbors and across this vast area, goods and also cultures circulated. Another precursor trade to the Silk Road was the so-called Jade Road. Jade was very sought after in China, and it came from Central Asia and Burma, crossing the Himalaya Mountains to arrive in Yunnan, in the south of China, across some of the most remote and difficult regions in the world. Jade, which is a mineral that can be green to white, was highly valued because it was believed to provide power and protection to kings and emperors, so they patronized this trade. An illustration of cultural influences from afar is Chinese crafts made with jade from the first millennium BC, centuries before the opening of the Silk Road, that drew inspiration from the styles of the Scythians, a nomadic people from the steppes of Western Asia and Eastern Europe. Another people the Chinese traded with 
were the Sogdians who lived in uh, modern Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan and Turkmenistan. In the first millennium BC, Sogdiana, the land of the Sogdians, kept changing hands under the influence of different invaders, the Persians, the Persian Empire, then the Greeks or the Macedonians following the invasion of Alexander the Great, and it went on. But Sogdiana and the different rulers maintained an inclination to participate in international trade with different cities drawing important resources from it. The most important one would become Samarkand that transformed itself into one of the most important stops for caravans along the Silk Road. The point of these examples, the steppe route or the jade road, is that commercial routes had appeared before the Silk Road, and this is how Chinese artifacts ended up in Europe or in Egypt. But they most probably arrived in very small quantities, and almost accidentally, after having changed hands several times, rather than on a trade route with the intention to export them from China to the other side of the ancient world. The impulse to create a commercial road was given by the Chinese in the 2nd century BC. But why? China had unified under the first emperor, Qin, and the following dynasty, the Han dynasty, expanded towards Central Asia. The Han administration became aware that deep inland, in Central Asia, there were large cities that deserved their interest. And they sent embassies. The emperor received reports from his ambassadors, especially one called Zhang Qian in the late 2nd century BC who advocated for the establishment of trade relations. Central Asia had attractive goods, including gold, precious stones and other precious materials, horses, and this could be obtained by offering Chinese products like tea, silk, lacquer and other crafts. Ambassador Zhang Qian also made reports on neighboring countries further west and south, such as the Parthians in Persia, India or Mesopotamia. The one thing that particularly interested China was that Central Asia had tall and powerful horses, better for fighting than Chinese horses. And because they had constant skirmishes with nomadic peoples on their northern and western frontiers, peoples who moved and fought with horses, the Chinese needed them. So with the Emperor's blessing, a commercial route was established and policed from China to Central Asia, across thousands of miles, 
and this policy would be maintained consistently for decades. Merchants in Central Asia understood that there was probably demand, there were possible clients to the West, towards the Middle East, for these Chinese products that were on offer. So they carried them by land farther and farther to the West, extending this Silk Road. Also during the first century BC, an alternative route to India opened by the sea. It started in the north of modern Vietnam, the region of Jiaoqi, which at the time was ruled by the Chinese, and via ports on the coasts of India and Sri Lanka. It also extended all the way to the Middle East, arriving by the Red Sea. Ships on this maritime route, or caravans on the land route, did not go all the way from China to the Western world. From the beginning, trade along this long route worked with middlemen, Indian traders who bought the goods in India and took them west to resell them with a profit, or people from the Central Asian steppes and deserts who did the same on the land route. So the first merchants on the Silk Road never traveled to the other side. They brought the goods to ports, trading posts or marketplaces where the goods changed hands, sometimes several times, and went on until they reached their final destination months later. This is why many historians consider the term Silk Road a bit misleading, because in fact there were several routes and they formed a network with alternative paths rather than a single land road. The land route through Eurasia was significant, but it is believed that the most important one in terms of volume of goods traded over the centuries, would be the maritime route, the one crossing the Indian Ocean, and on which the products that transited were not only from China or from the Mediterranean, there were also spices from Southeast Asia, gold and ivory from Africa, and Indian textiles and gems. In the first century BC, while the Han Dynasty ruled over and unified China in the East, the dominating power in the West was the Roman Republic, soon to become the Roman Empire. And as the Chinese expanded to their West, the Romans were expanding to their East, to Syria, Palestine, Egypt. Between these two blocks, Rome and China, there were several kingdoms, several states, the most important by far being the Persian Parthian Empire, which became an archenemy of the Romans. But despite the distance, 
Romans and Chinese still became aware of each other. On both sides, archaeological finds attest that there was an indirect trade between the two. In China, Roman glassware and silverware have been found in tombs. Also many Roman coins and medallions from the 1st century AD onwards. Sometimes coins are not the best indicator. They could have arrived in China several centuries after they were minted. But there are enough sites and artifacts to confirm that they arrived in China 2,000 years ago. And, interestingly, a lot of these Roman remains were found in Jiaochi, this historical region in North Vietnam that was the final stop of the Maritime Road on the Chinese side. But this trade was indirect, and the real level of mutual awareness, how much each side knew about the other. This remains a topic of speculation and investigation. There could have been Chinese embassies to Rome, but it is hard to conclude one way or the other based on Roman archives, because envoys from the east of their empire, beyond the Parthian Empire, were collectively called Ceres by the Romans. They did not distinguish clearly Indians, Chinese or other peoples from Asia in their chronicles and literature. Apart from official embassies, multiple encounters with merchants from Serica, this unprecise land of the Ceres, are mentioned in Roman writings, but it is never sure they were actually Chinese. On the Chinese side, there doesn't seem to have been more knowledge of the Romans. They had a name for the Roman Empire, Dachin, and Chinese ambassadors to the Parthian Empire, with which they had regular diplomatic relations, wrote reports that included second-hand testimonies about Rome in the 1st century AD. In some texts, Chinese historians of the past speak of Roman embassies to China in the 2nd century. But this is dubious because these chronicles were written later, and such embassies are absent from Roman historiography. So, what we can conclude of this is that the Chinese and the Romans, the two most formidable empires of the world, in the first centuries of our era, knew about each other's existence. They were aware that some of the products that reached them came from the other side, including Roman glassware in China or Chinese silk in Rome, but they only had a vague idea about where the other empire was located, what its borders were, because of the distance, and there are no signs of continuous diplomatic contacts. 
that records on both sides illustrate how this long-distance trade brought prosperity. In China, silk was a luxury product that was only accessible to the highest and wealthiest classes of society, starting with the imperial court. Its sale abroad at a very high price became a lucrative activity, especially for the state that controlled production tightly. For the Romans, access to these eastern goods started on a larger scale after the conquest of Egypt and Syria. Egypt, in particular, that had trade connections with India. By the time of Augustus, so that is at the start of the first century AD, there would have been up to 120 ships setting sail every year from Roman Egypt to India. They traveled following the coastline because ocean-going sailing was very limited and dangerous at the time. From the first century onward, a craze for silk developed in Rome. The Romans did not know how silk was made. They supposed it was obtained from a tree. And so they were a very long way from being able to produce some themselves. They later learned that the fiber came from certain caterpillars, but they didn't know how to replicate the production process, so all of their supply had to be imported. A lot of this silk arrived by land, and as we saw before, it was not sold directly by Chinese merchants. It was supplied by the Parthians, who had bought it in Central Asia. At least it was provided when the intermittent wars with the Romans allowed it. Sometimes land supply could be cut by walls, which only made silk more difficult to find and so more desirable and expensive. Together with it arrived spices and perfumes that also became very sought-after luxury goods for wealthy Romans. Rome had products to export too, like silverware and glassware, but their value was far from really matching imports from Asia. And early on, this became a source of concern for authorities, because the difference had to be paid in gold. This created an outflow of gold that escaped to Asia. And in reaction, authorities tried to limit silk imports. The Roman Senate issued several edicts to condemn the wearing of silk on economic and moral grounds. Silk clothes were called decadent and immoral because they were very thin, much thinner and lighter than traditional Roman fabrics. But the real concern was this outflow of gold and this moral or economic condemnation never stopped the appetite for silk. The 
Chinese and the Romans were not the only ones to benefit. In between them, there were all these middlemen from India, Central Asia and the Middle East who made their segment of the Silk Road function by acquiring goods and transporting them forward and also selling them locally. Thousands, if not tens of thousands of people lived from this trade, from porters to wealthy merchants, arming ships or organizing caravans on land. On land, traveling in group for safety and economies of scale was an ancient practice, but it became standard on the Silk Road. As soon as the Chinese began to impulse the Silk Road to Central Asia, they sent caravans. With a regular flow of caravans, accommodation and places to rest became necessary along the Silk Road. And this is how specialized inns, the caravanserais, multiplied. The word caravan comes from Persian caravan, and serai means palace or building with enclosed courts. When crossing deserts or mountains, caravaners would just camp in the open, with guards watching at night, because obviously the goods they transported could attract bands of thieves. But on other parts of the Silk Road, with actual roads, or when they crossed cities, they needed places to stay. These were the caravanserais, which were often located along roads in the countryside, or in the outskirts of cities. Caravanserais were enclosed, offering protection and they also offered water, food, and space for animals, horses or camels, and dormitories for men. They did not appear with the Silk Road. There were already some before in India and in the Persian Empire, but they became more common, and they appeared in new regions with the multiplication of caravans. During the Islamic period, that started several centuries after the opening of the Silk Road, caravanserais became a common type of structure from the west of China to North Africa, and urban caravanserais became more than inns. They were often located near the bazaar, the main market, and they were the places where goods would arrive or depart from, centers of economic activities that offered things to buy or sell, jobs, and were integrated in the city's daily life. The historic centers of many old cities across the Muslim world still reflect how it worked from Fes in Morocco to Istanbul in Turkey or Cairo in Egypt. Typically, 
The caravanserai was a building with a square or rectangular outer wall and a single entrance, a portal wide enough to let large or heavily laden beasts to enter, such as camels. The building was organized around a, a courtyard, almost always open to the sky, and around the courtyard were a number of animal stalls, rooms and chambers to accommodate people, animals and merchandise. Sometimes more elaborate caravanserais provided hammams, public baths. They had shops where travelers could acquire the equipment they needed, and urban ones in medieval times sometimes added more floors to provide rental apartments to people living on a low income. So, from the first century BC to the third century AD, as both ends of the Silk Road knew a long period of relative prosperity and stability, this trade prospered. But history happened, and the two mighty empires of the East and the West went into trouble. In China, for the most part of four centuries, the Han Dynasty had ruled over an unified China. But it finally fell, and a period of fracture began, with different states. This period in the 3rd century is known as the Three Kingdoms period. Retrospectively, the Han period would be considered a golden age for China. It was not a quiet period. There were internal conflicts, warfare on the borders, and power passed from one branch of the Han Dynasty to another at the beginning of the first century AD. But still, it remained as an extended period of relative stability when classical Chinese culture could flourish. In the West, the Roman Empire, which had been at its peak in the second century, had a major crisis in the third century that led to its fracture and increased pressure on its borders that it had a hard time defending. The Silk Road did not close. As we have seen, it was a network with different routes, and this made it adaptable. But it was seriously disturbed by the loss of control of states on the roads of Central Asia and around the Mediterranean. Finally, the Western Roman Empire collapsed in the 5th century, disappearing as an end client, and it would take centuries before Western Europe became a significant client again for sophisticated Chinese and Asian goods. Remained the Eastern Roman Empire, Byzantium, which was still formidable. The eastern half of the empire had not been ravaged by wars and invasions like in the west, and it even reconquered large parts of the western empire. 
It was at war with the successor of the Parthians in Persia, the Sassanian Empire. The Sassanians controlled half of the Middle East, the other great power in the region being Byzantium. But due to their position, they were in control of all commercial roads that went through Iran. Demand for silk and other exotic products went on in Byzantium. North of the Sassanians, in West and Central Asia, had emerged a new major actor, the Turkic Khaganate, a huge inland empire, essentially populated by different nomadic peoples that had been unified by a Turkic clan. Turkic peoples are a collection of diverse ethnic groups originated from West and Central Asia. They were unified by language and cultural traits, but they are not a single ethnicity, and they are different from modern Turks, but historically related. A Turkish population emerged from the mix of Turkic invaders, with the locals who lived in Turkey in the late antiquity and the Middle Ages. So by the 6th century AD, this Turkic Khaganate had expanded to cover a very large area, going from Mongolia in the east to the Caspian Sea in the west. It was not densely populated, and culturally, it was a collection of different peoples, including the Sogdians from Central Asia that I mentioned before. Sogdian was one of the official languages of this Kaganate, together with Old Turkic. Kaganate is a term that means chiefdom or kingdom. The term is typically used for Turkic, Mongol and Tatar populations of Asia, who were ruled by a Khan, a chief. If you want more details about it, I made a story about the Mongol Empire that you can listen to. With this huge band of land that connected east and west, the Turkic Khaganate was well-placed to manage a large portion of the land route from and to China, all the more that the Chinese had lost control of their possessions in Central Asia after the fall of the Han Dynasty. In the 6th century, the Emperor of Byzantium, Justin II, made an alliance with the Turkic Khaganate against their common enemy, the Sassanians, and bypassed the Sassanians for silk trade, dealing directly with Sogdian merchants that lived in the Turkic Khaganate. But the Byzantines did more. They managed to steal the secret of silk making. Fifty years before this alliance, Emperor Justinian had sent monks as spies along the Silk Road, from the capital, Constantinople, 
to China. These spies were able to procure silkworm eggs and bring them to Constantinople, allowing the Byzantines to start their own silk production. This became a profitable activity for the Eastern Roman Empire that had a monopoly over silk production for centuries around the Mediterranean. This production was centered around Constantinople and in northern Greece. But they could never rival the Chinese for quality. China already had thousands of years of experience in silk making at this point. And Chinese silk remained the luxury version of this Byzantine silk. So it did not stop imports and a proof that the Silk Road still operated in the late antiquity is the discovery of coins minted in Constantinople in the 6th century and found in Chinese tombs. The story of Byzantium is one of a very long and slow decline, with periods of recovery and reconquest and others of collapse. But for now, in the 6th century, Byzantium was still in good shape. It was re-expanding, and the Chinese noticed that the Roman Empire had changed. They did not know precisely what had happened, but they were aware that the old Roman Empire that they called Dachin had fractured or changed capital. They called the Byzantine Empire Fulin, and they knew that this Fulin was a good end client for silk, lacquer, or ceramics. Came the 7th century, and with it, new big changes on the Silk Road. Two major events happened in China the rise of the Tang dynasty, and in the Middle East, the Muslim conquest. The Tang dynasty in China is considered another golden age. The Tang reunified China under their rule and reconquered the western regions, fighting the Turkics and Tibetans. They reimpulsed the Silk Road now that they controlled a large chunk of the land route to the west, which made them able to deal directly with the Sogdians from Central Asia and the Persian merchants. This control over regions far from the historical Chinese heartland is sometimes called Pax Sinica, by comparison with the term Pax Romana that was coined to called the stability and peace brought by the domination of the Roman Empire. Pax Sinica is the same for China. There was the first Pax Sinica under the Han, and a new one, a second one, with the Tang. Compared with previous periods, the Tang were rather outward-looking. They were inclined to impulse commerce, and they welcomed foreigners in some of their cities. 
They also developed a maritime presence farther. Chinese envoys had been sailing through the Indian Ocean to India for several centuries already. But they went farther than India, and punctually they reached the Persian Gulf and the Horn of Africa. The other big change in the 7th century was the rise of Islam, expanding out of Arabia very quickly, especially at the expense of Byzantium and the Sasanian Empire, which was the last pre-Islamic state in Iran. After the conquest, Iran was mostly converted to Islam, but in return, Persian culture also strongly influenced Muslim states of the Middle East. Far from destroying the Silk Road, all these changes reinforced it. After the destruction left by the conquest, the Islamic Caliphate rebuilt and became a major trade partner with Central Asia and China. The Muslim conquest extended to Central Asia in the 8th century, until it clashed with the Chinese and their westward expansion. There was a large battle in 751, the Battle of Talas, between the Abbasid Caliphate and its allies from the Tibetan Empire, and an army of the Tang. The Muslim side won the battle, but after that trade resumed because it was advantageous for both sides. It is disputed, but the consequence of this military clash could have been further dissemination of Chinese technology techniques to the West. The Abbasids made hundreds of prisoners of war that were taken to Abbasid territory and would have lived there from crafts they knew, including silk weaving and paper making, which would have permitted a transfer of technology. Paper making was widespread in China, whereas in the Middle East and the Mediterranean world, the most common form of support for writing was papyrus, with parchment as a, a high-end alternative. Parchment is animal skin. And indeed, paper-making spread throughout the Islamic world by the end of the 8th century. The first paper mill was built in Baghdad in 794-795, and paper started to replace papyrus. It is uh, uncertain whether the prisoners of the Battle of Talas were responsible for the technology transfer or not. But one way or the other, this particular trade was disseminated, imitating Chinese techniques. In the 8th to 10th centuries, the Islamic world fractured into many states, often rivals, but the Silk Road entered into a new golden age. It was still operated by peoples from Central Asia, 
like the Sogdians and Turkics, now converted to Islam for the majority of them, by the Persians, the Arabs, the Byzantines, and there are plenty of signs of the cultural exchange between East and West, especially in decorative arts. Muslim craftsmen were inspired by Chinese aesthetics, and vice versa. Some Chinese ceramics, for example, emulated the kind of geometric and floral patterns from Islamic art. Byzantium had shrunk to Anatolia and the south of the Balkans, but it was also an important contributor to the Silk Road as an importer of Chinese crafts and an exporter of glassware or animals. On the maritime route in the Indian Ocean, the spice trade was also prospering, and in the West, Europe was beginning to reappear on the trade map. Western Europe, after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, was no longer a significant participant to the Silk Road that once went as far as Rome. From the 5th century onward, the road ended in the Levant and Constantinople, and very few exotic products went on to Western Europe. But the kingdoms of Western Europe were now emerging from the Dark Ages and rediscovered the appeal of spices and luxury products. This would make the fortune of Italian cities like Venice and Genoa, and also give economic support to Byzantium, that was the natural gateway to the East for Europeans. Goods that arrived in Constantinople or other ports of Byzantium would be bought by Italian merchants who took them to Italy, and from there they were re-exported to Western Europe. This trade was risky and often interrupted by walls, threatened by piracy, but it was also very lucrative, and like it had done long before for nomadic peoples in Central Asia, Chinese craftsmen, Muslim merchants, it changed the economy and society. It energized the production of crafts for export. It changed taste because of these new products arriving. It made a class of wealthy merchants appear. It changed the lifestyle of the wealthy classes that could afford foreign goods. It favored innovation in saving or the management of businesses. And it connected faraway parts of the world in ways that could be catastrophic sometimes. A good example of that is the spreading of the Black Death, the bubonic plague pandemic of the 14th century. What happened? In the 13th century, China was overwhelmed by the Mongol invasion of Genghis Khan and the Mongol Empire expanded very fast, 
to become the largest land empire the world had ever seen, going from China and Mongolia to the Middle East. The Mongol conquest was brutal and very costly in lives and destruction, but it was followed by good and efficient administration. After more and more provinces had been included within the Mongol Empire at the time of its expansion, in the 13th and 14th centuries, they became connected and relatively spared from warfare. The Mongols also favored trade for its economic advantages, but also as a way to unify their gigantic empire encompassing very diverse peoples. So they protected and impulsed the Silk Road that had become essentially an internal trade axis connecting their Chinese holdings in the east to their more recently conquered provinces of the Middle East. In China, the Mongol rulers that became emperors and are called the Yuan dynasty, reunified China and made it the economic heartland of their empire. Trade brought great prosperity again to some Chinese and Central Asian cities like Bukhara or Samarkand. And for a time, it reinvigorated Arab cities like Baghdad that had been destroyed by the invasion. But not only goods could travel across this empire, pathogens could too. The bubonic plague is caused by a bacterium that could be spread by fleas, fleas living on rats, and the flea easily passed it to humans. It is also considered likely that during the pandemic, the bacterium took a secondary form that made it spreadable just by person-to-person contact. This bacterium is thought to have appeared in Central Asia, somewhere in the Tian Shan Mountains that are on the border of modern China and Kyrgyzstan, around 2,600 years ago. From there, it spread several times, leading to antique and medieval epidemics. But the one that happened in the 14th century was on another scale. It is supposed to have been introduced to Europe during a siege. The Genoese had acquired the port of Kaffa in Crimea, that was a trading post for them, directly linked to their trade activity with the East. The port was besieged by the Golden Horde, the Khanate that ruled over the northwestern sector of the Mongol Empire. The plague had traveled from Central Asia to Crimea along the Silk Road, and the Golden Horde soldiers were dying from it. But instead of retreating, the army threw their bodies over the walls of Kaffa. 
So the epidemic began in Kaffa too. And from there, most likely carried by fleas living on rats that traveled on Genoese ships, it spread all around the Mediterranean, reaching Constantinople, then Italy, North Africa, and soon all of Europe. For several years, the pandemic ravaged Europe and the Middle East, killing more than a third of the population. People had no idea how the disease spread. They had understood that avoiding contact and closing walled cities could help, and this saved many lives. But from 1346 to 1353, the disease advanced unchecked. This could have happened without the Silk Road, and uh, more broadly without the existence of trade routes connecting Asia to Europe. But the spread was that fast and destructive because the intense activity of caravans and the movement of populations within the Mongol Empire had uh, transformed the Silk Road into a highway for pathogens. Before this happened, in the 13th century, Western Europeans had begun to reinvest and explore this trade connection with the Far East, essentially missionaries and merchants. The most famous is certainly Marco Polo, a Venetian merchant and explorer who traveled by land. But he was not the first. His predecessors are little known because their accounts were less read and they failed to make a big impact in Western Europe. But they include various men like Guillaume de Roubaix, a Flemish missionary and explorer, Benedict Pollack, who was a Franciscan friar from Poland, Giovanni da Pian del Campine, an Italian diplomat, or André of Longjumeau, a French missionary. All these men traveled to the heart of the Mongol Empire. Some of them were received at the court of the Great Khan, and they began to inform Europe of customs, languages, and the political situation of the Far East. But Marco Polo provided a particularly comprehensive and also successful account. So who was Marco Polo? Despite his fame, there are plenty of unknowns about his life. We know he was born around 1254 in Venice, in a family of merchants. His father and his uncle were traveling merchants who went into this business together before Marco was born. Like other Venetian merchants, they established trading posts in different locations. They had created at least one in Constantinople and another one in Crimea. At the time, Venetian and Genoan merchants created relays like this, with employees 
would manage day-to-day activity. They would receive shipments coming from other trading posts, buy and sell goods, keep books, look for opportunities. The job of creating and maintaining this network implied traveling most of the time and exploring. His father and uncle were particularly enterprising because while Marco was still a child, they followed the Silk Road all the way to the Far East and met the Mongol Emperor of China, Kublai Khan. They were part of the handful of Western Europeans who traveled to China by land in the 13th century. They returned safely to Venice in 1269, when Marco was 15. They had been absent for so long that Marco did not know his father yet, and his mother had died, so he had been raised by an aunt and another uncle. He received a good education that destined him to become a merchant like the rest of the family, learning on subjects like the handling of cargo ships, foreign currencies, appraising, how to conduct business. He probably connected well with his father and uncle, because two years later, when he was 17, the three of them embarked on a new journey to Asia and this journey would last 24 years and turn out to be very eventful. It provided the material that was later published in a book, The Travels of Marco Polo, that spread well beyond Venice and popularized Marco Polo. This is why his name eclipsed all other European travelers of the Middle Ages to China. But it wasn't just due to a successful book. His adventures were extraordinary. With his father and uncle, they did the travel again along the Silk Road all the way to China, where for the second time they were received by Kublai Khan. But Kublai Khan liked Marco, supposedly for his intelligence and he appointed him as one of his foreign emissaries. As envoy of the Great Khan and Emperor of China, Marco Polo was sent on many diplomatic missions, a role that no other European had ever had. This is how he traveled across China and Southeast Asia to India, Burma, Sri Lanka, Vietnam. For 17 years, Marco stayed in Asia as a, a special envoy or a high-ranking official. Around 1291, Marco was now 37 and had spent more than half his life in Asia. He was sent to accompany a Mongol princess to Persia with his aging father and uncle, 
who were still alive and had also stayed with him in China. They arrived in Persia in 1293 and then went on to Constantinople and finally returned to Venice after 24 years. Marco would have settled in Venice and finally become a merchant, but not yet, because Venice and Genoa were at war. He joined the war effort and was captured by the Genoans. He could have been executed or die in a cell, but fortunately, he ended up in a prison in Genoa with a cellmate who was also a writer, and he dictated his stories to him. The two co-authored the travels of Marco Polo. Finally, he was released in 1299, now aged 45, and this time he could go back for good to Venice, where he married, had three children, and built a fortune for himself, becoming a wealthy merchant. He died there in 1324, aged 70. His book became a medieval bestseller, but was met with skepticism. It sounded a bit too extraordinary to be true. His account was quite different from others who had described the Mongols as barbarians, whereas his presented Chinese civilization under Mongol rule as prosperous and refined under a positive light. They did not all have the same experience and saw the same things, which could explain some of these differences and it is also likely that Marco Polo's narrative was embellished. But since then, many details have been proven true and bring credibility to his account. It did not contain gross geographical errors like other accounts, his description of cities, of customs, of the currencies used, of clothing, all of this was proven accurate, comparing it with archaeological discoveries and Chinese records. Many of his embassies, including the last one, when he accompanied a Mongol princess to Persia, were proven to be real. So there were probably exaggerations or embellishments here and there. But overall, he provided the most accurate report among these European travelers of the Middle Ages. And his book had the most insight, because he rose high in Chinese society and stayed there for a long time. The Mongol Empire went on in the 14th century, but then it fragmented, declined. The Yuan dynasty in China lost its grip on the country, and a new Chinese dynasty replaced it soon, the Ming. For the Silk Road, this decline of the Mongols was bad. 
It had functioned for decades within the Mongol Empire, for the most part. But its fragmentation separated different states along the Silk Road and made it more difficult and dangerous. In the West, Byzantium was now agonizing and had lost most of Anatolia, Turkey, to Turkic invaders, the Turkmens, and the devastation of the Black Death along the Silk Road had decimated the nomads and cities that lived from it. Overall, after the collapse of the Mongol Empire, nomadic groups in Central Asia declined strongly. Regional sedentary states emerged instead. So in the late 14th and 15th centuries, the Silk Road declined with them. There was little interest from the Ming dynasty in China to impulse it again. The Ming had a very inward-looking policy and they discouraged contacts with foreigners. The land road across Central Asia was more dangerous. And on the western end of the Silk Road, the Ottoman Empire was rising eventually cutting Western Europe from Eastern trade. This was a big hit for Italian city-states like Venice. Caravan trade across Asia did not disappear, but it never came back to what it once was, at the time of Rome and the Han, or the Abbasid Caliphate and the Tang, or under Mongol control. On the maritime route, in the Indian Ocean, spices had largely overtaken Chinese goods. And so the Silk Road didn't close, but it became less and less relevant. It had been the most important axis for world trade during 1500 years, and was about to be replaced with other routes and other actors. By the end of the 15th century, explorers from Europe reached America, passed south of Africa into the Indian Ocean, and soon they reached Asia on their own. First the Portuguese by the east, then the Spanish across the Pacific by the west, and they were followed by the Dutch, the French, the English who would reorganize world trade to their profit by sailing themselves straight to India and China, buying the goods they wanted there and bringing them back to European ports, bypassing all the intermediaries, the middlemen, that had prospered along the Silk Road for centuries. This is how the Silk Road slowly vanished, leaving watchtowers in ruins, abandoned fortresses and caravanserais in the middle of nowhere, alongside roads that had been busy with caravans for centuries, but were now mainly used by the locals. 
and the dissenters of world trade moved to Europe for a few centuries. Lisbon, Sevilla, Amsterdam, London. Apart from the cultural exchange it allowed for a long time, the Silk Road remains as the first step in the globalization process, a connection between two of the most far apart ends of the known world. Its disappearance had major consequences. It was not the only reason, but the disappearance of the Silk Road also contributed to the European effort to seek alternative routes to the Far East, which was a major motivation during the Age of Exploration, the Age of Discovery. Without Chinese silk and porcelain, or Asian spices, it is unsure the Portuguese and the Spanish would have sent expeditions across the world's oceans at the moment when they did it, and the history of the world could have been very different. We have reached the end of our journey. You can now let go and fall asleep. I will be back soon with another story. But for now, sleep well, sweet dreams. Au revoir.